We're in chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 22 today. And as we look at this, it's a pretty simple outline. We're going to go through the text and kind of uh, take a, a look at each verse as we go through that. But really, uh, this, this text, 12 through 22, it's 10 verses, but it's divided into two little, what I would call bylines or two little stories within the text. The first one, what we're going to see is an unexpected invitation. God reveals an unexpected invitation. Have you ever been somewhere and seen somebody that just doesn't fit in and you go, what is that guy doing here? You ever, I, I have. You've been there and like, well, like, who invited that guy? Like, like why is he here? Right? And so we're going to see a, a moment like that. The, the second part of the text, 18 through 22, we're going to see an unanticipated celebration. So often when you see cults, whether it's Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, but a lot of what I would call a very legalistic kind of mindset out there, they don't look very joyful, especially if you engage them to talk about their story. They don't want to talk about their story. They want to try to sell you information or get you to buy into information. That's the thing that makes Christianity different. True biblical faith in Christ is us sharing what He's done in our life. Wanting to share with other people how He's changed us. Not what they have to learn, that comes later. But it's just sharing good news with people. Man, my life has changed. And let me tell you how it changed. So that's what we're going to look at. An unexpected invitation and an unanticipated celebration. And that's what those will be two hooks that we can kind of hang things on. But for Victor's sake, uh, and to refresh your own memory, as we went through God, the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, remember the lens through which we view everything, not only in this text, but really the New Testament, is the meaning of the word Gospel. If we get that wrong, then everything we see is clouded by that wrong lens. It's distorted. And we have a lot of distortions of the gospel in our country. And remember, we talked about that as we went through, we spent four weeks going through what would the New Testament hearers had heard? What did they hear when they heard the word euangelion? It was not what you and I hear. And I know we beat that horse to death, but you're going to hear me almost every week remind you that. The, the term euangelion, which we translate good news, gospel, was only used in three instances. It was a secular term. It was used when a new king was crowned, when a new king was born, and when a king had won a great military victory. All three of those apply to Jesus. They knew that when they wrote it. And so Mark starts his Gospel off with the beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we went through chapter 1 talking about his message was to repent, believe, and follow. 
Those were responses that came after His grace. The grace of a call on your life. The grace of a drawing you to Him. It did not start with you. It never does. You don't have the ability on your own to come to Jesus. You can't even think about Him unless He draws you. You can't think about God the Father except in creation you know something's there. But nobody desires a relationship with the Creator the way it's supposed to be on their own. Scripture's clear on that. But I grew up being taught it's all in your hands. You are responsible. Are we responsible? Yes. Do we have the ability on our own apart from God the Father to come to Him? No. We do not. That is crystal clear. Now, I will say this. Throughout the ages, people have argued. You may have heard these terms. Arminianism. Calvinism. There's been two sets of um, systems where people try to, to define everything. And what happens is you get these aberrations to the extreme over here who say you have responsibility, you have to do it, you initiate. And then over here, you have people that say God initiates, you do nothing. And there is something we do, we respond. We're all held responsible. And, and so those, there's a tension there because we can't fully understand in our human brains how God could initiate and yet hold people responsible. But I promise you, when we get to heaven, we'll know. But we may not know this side how it all works. But all we can go on is what it says in Scripture, right? It, it, listen, if it's not true, if, if we don't get this right, then what good is it? If the Bible's wrong in one thing, it taints it all. That's why when you, if you believe the Bible has errors in it, I don't know how you pick and choose what's error and what's not. Who determines what the error is? You? A group? A denomination? So, as we look at this today, just to going through what we've seen over the last few weeks and all the way going back to September, we've been working through one. And at the end of chapter one, remember what happened? There was a, a leper who was healed. And this leper was unclean. And remember, leprosy was symbolic of sin. It's deeper than the surface and it's deadly. It's a systemic problem. And you, your problem and my problem, the human problem is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. It's systemic. It's like cancer. It eats from the inside. You may not even see the effects of it on the outside. You usually will see symptoms, but for the most part, it can be very subtle. Some of the most self-righteous people in the world, you would look at them and go, man, they're good people. But on the inside, that one, they think they're self-righteous. They think they're good. They think they're good enough to get into a relationship with God on their own. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because nobody's righteous. So they stand in judgment of God's Word. And they can't do that. So as we look at this, that's what was going on at the end of chapter 1. This leper uh, comes up and, and what, what happens is 
uh, all these people start going crazy wanting to be around Jesus. And Jesus had to go out into the rural areas. He couldn't go into the cities because everybody wanted to be around the healer. This guy says he's the Messiah. He's healing people. He healed a leper. We need to go see. So there was all these crowds. And then they, he goes back to Capernaum. They start gathering at the house where he's staying, which many believe was Peter's house. And as he's in there, all these crowds are surrounding him. And there's a paralytic guy with his four friends trying to get the paralytic to Jesus to be healed. And nobody would let him through. Why? Because crowds are selfish or self-centered. They didn't care about, they didn't even really care about their own spiritual health. They were there because they wanted to see the sideshow. They were there because they wanted to see what's in it for me. And so what happens is this guy gets let down through the ceiling. That's what we covered last week. And his friends let him down, and Jesus looks at him and says, You're healed, get up and walk. Right? Didn't he say that to him? Rise up, take your bed and walk. Yeah, but at first he said something else, didn't he? Yeah, because Jesus cared more about his spiritual health than his physical health. And we said this last week, everybody who was healed in the Bible died. Even guys that were brought back from the dead died. Again. Right? So Jesus was not just focus on the physical healing. It was the spiritual. The physical healing authenticated His message from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those Old Testament passages that talked about Messiah healing. You know, when we pray today, listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for healing. I I pray for healing for people. And, And Jim, I celebrate with you what God has done in you. My mom had breast cancer. She went in. They said there were three lumps showed up on the x-ray. People prayed. She goes back a a couple of weeks later. There's nothing there. The doctor holds up both x-rays. One, it's there. One, it's not. He goes, I don't understand. She goes, I do. So I believe in healing, but I believe more importantly in spiritual healing of people. Because what's most of the time when we give prayer requests, we pray for physical healing, not spiritual healing for people. Salvation for people. Deliverance from addiction or some demonic oppression for people. We don't hear a lot of those prayers. But make no mistake, the way these stories are put in the Bible in Mark chapter 2 is what my friend Tommy Nelson calls a landmark. Because these accounts are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The same accounts, the same order. You don't see that in Scripture very often. Because everybody gives a different little perspective because they're different eyewitnesses. So you see little variations. But in these stories, they're all right there together. You have the paralytic. You have Levi. And you have the questioning of the apostles not fasting. In all three Gospels, boom, 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 the same way. They're almost told exactly the same with just a few little details in some of the other texts that give more amplification. But, but that's a landmark. And so let's, let's look at all three of them real quick. What happens? Jesus is teaching, and, and all of them. And, and what happens is, He's questioned by the religious leaders. 
they crush, they question his credibility. He can't be the Messiah. Who is he to forgive this guy's sins? Remember that? And or the paralytic? And with Levi, who is this guy who's hanging around tax collectors and sinners? Who is this guy? Why are his disciples not fasting? We fast. And all three, it's a, an attack on his credibility as Messiah. And so I've titled the this little session today, this is not the Messiah you are looking for, for all my Star Wars guys out there. <laughs> Remember that? This is not the droid you are looking for. Well, it's not the Messiah they were looking for. And that's why they missed it. I wonder if we have our expectations of what Jesus ought to be and we put him within our box. And maybe we fall into that. When you see things like this road mark, uh, this, this road sign or landmark in scriptures, um, God's trying to, to communicate something. So what, what's he wanting us to see? What's he wanting us to, to get out of this? Well, let's take a look. Let's read Mark 2, 12 through 22. And, and we're going to go through and see this unexpected invitation and an unanticipated celebration, and then we'll kind of close up. So, um, starting in 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the lake, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the booth, at the tax booth. He said to him, Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These are the very words of God. And as, as Mark starts off in verse 13 that he went out again beside the lake. This is the, the Lake Gennesaret. It's the Sea of Galilee. And it's where he was based out of at Capernaum where he had healed the paralytic. 
And he, it says, all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So remember I said last week, Jesus was always teaching. Didn't matter if he was on a hillside, down by the lake, in a boat, in a home. He was teaching. It was his priority to teach the Word because without the Word, nobody, nobody comes to God without the Word. What does Romans say? Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. And hearing the what? The Word. The Word. The Word of God. And so he was out. The crowd was coming to him. He's teaching them. Verse 14, it says, He saw Levi as he passed. Where? As he's walking. There's a tax booth in Capernaum. Levi was sitting at the tax booth. We know because Matthew gives us the same account. Matthew tells us the name Matthew. Why is that? Why is it Matthew and Matthew and Levi here in Mark? He wrote because he was a, Levi, uh, a Levite. He didn't want to... Who wrote, who wrote Mark? John Mark, who was writing from the perspective of who? Peter. Yeah. Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. The name Levi, you know what it means? It means attached. It means attached. Leah, remember what happened? Remember the story of Jacob and, and Leah and Jacob and Rachel? Jacob loved Rachel. Leah, he got, he got the short end of the stick there because he thought he was working for Rachel and he ended up gets Leah. Leah felt spurned by him, but... When she had Levi, which was son number three, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi. When she had Levi, she called him Levi because she felt attached. He will love me now. That's the name. Names had meaning. They don't have as much meaning for you and me. Back then they had meaning. And so God says, I will take Levi... And Levi will be the tribe that serves me. They won't have land. They won't have possessions. I will be their possession. So his namesake meant attached to God. But what did he attach himself to? Money. Money. He was driven by money. You see, there, there were... Um, there were two types of tax collectors in this time period. One was called Gabai. G-A-B-B-A-I is transliterated from the Greek. Gabai. John MacArthur says it because you would say goodbye to your money when you went by. So, <laughs> but anyway, it's Gabai. Gabai. Now a Gabai was uh, both Gabais and the others, which is Mokas, M-O-K-H, uh, A.S. Both of them were franchises. They, they basically, Rome would enlist them or they would go bribe Roman officials to be tax people. It's like they bought a franchise. Hey, I want to be your tax guy. The Gabais would do the big taxes, the, the ones that were annual, the income tax, the land tax, the, you know, the property taxes, the things that were pretty set by Rome. The Mocus, oh, they would do 
what I call the special use taxes or the duties. They would charge people to go over a bridge. They charged people to export things, import things, fish. If they caught fish and they were going to sell in the market, they would get their cut of that. Very subjective taxes. Hey, you got a red car, Jimmy. We're taxing red cars today. They could do that at any time. And you know who was behind them? Rome. The, the Roman guards would enforce it. And so you have the goodbye. Remember the big taxes. The mocus did the special use. And within the mocus, there were two of those. There was a big mocus or the great mocus. And there was a little mocus. The little mocus, the little mocus would be the guy who sits at the tax booth working for the big mocus. The big mocus didn't want to be sullied by having people see him out there. So he just got all the benefits, had a big house, and he kind of was more outside. People knew he was a tax guy, but he wasn't seen every day down there ripping people off. The little mocus didn't care. He was just getting that money, and if he was good, he could make a lot of money and have a big house and do very well. But he was driven by money. Now Matthew was a little mocus. He was sitting at the tax booth. All of them were hated by Jews. All of them. Because they were considered traitors to their people. Their family rejected them. Their culture rejected them because they rejected their family. They rejected their culture. All they cared about was what? The almighty buck. They just were driven by money. Do we have a problem with that today? Have you ever had a problem with that? There have been times in my life that I was driven to try to do that. Every time I went that way, it always failed. It never worked out. If I give you a stock tip, don't buy it. It ain't going to work out. I'm just telling you, it, well, it, it ain't going to work. Matthew changed his name, or God changed his name one. We don't know who, but the name Matthew means gift of God. Gift of God. So here's Matthew. I'm going to call him Matthew from now on. Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. Jesus walks by and says, follow me. What did Matthew do to deserve that? Did Matthew show any interest in Jesus that we know of? Is there anything that indicates Matthew was seeking after Jesus? This is why I get, I, I really, I, I don't understand why people have such a hard time that God chooses who He brings into His kingdom because of examples like this. And it doesn't just start here. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Did Abraham do anything to deserve God's favor? He said, Abraham, I'm picking you. Go over here. Did Jacob do anything to earn God's favor? But while they were in the womb, he said, Jacob is going to be the one. Not Esau. Who chooses? God chooses. People get so... Listen, I've had three guys in the last 12 years get up and walk out of SWAT on this very issue. 
And they do not want to hear it. And, and I tried to talk to them and they got livid, angry. It's not fair. No, what's fair is for him to wipe everybody out. The fact that he would choose anybody is his grace. None of us deserve to be in it. What's fair is that we all get held. That's what's fair. But He doesn't give us fair. He does what He wants to do. And so He goes by, He sees this tax collector that everybody despises. And by the way, do you think Matthew had encounters with Jesus before getting taxes? Do you think that Peter, James, John, Andrew... Philip, do you think they encountered Matthew there in Capernaum? You bet. Everybody did. Nobody got away from him. How do you think those guys felt about him? You think they had a warm friendship when Jesus said, come on? You think, all right, Matthew's coming. Right? It'd be like if Nancy Pelosi walked. Well, yeah. I mean, it's even worse. I mean, like, it, it, it is... It is... It, it, it's... It is almost beyond our comprehension how bad they hated him. The fact that he betrayed his people. And, and for us, we, I don't even know that we can grasp that. We've never probably had anybody betray us that bad. It's almost like somebody who is a world... Let's say Billy Graham. Somebody in his family becomes satanic and is leading a satanic cult, misleading people away from the Lord. It would be almost like that. You would look at that person and go, and then somebody saying, hey, I want him to be part of our SWAT group. I mean, except Jesus didn't just say, follow me. He ends up making him one of his leaders. Equal with Peter. Equal with James and John. (laughs) This is so far beyond what we can comprehend. It was an unexpected invitation. Can you imagine the look on Levi's face and Matthew's face when Jesus said, hey, follow me. Oh, me? Are you talking to me? Me? Doug, isn't that an example of uh, the fact that Christianity is totally based on forgiveness? Yeah. 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 Well, see, here's the thing. This, this is really the first guy that you see Jesus call that you kind of scratch your head and go, wait a minute, is this guy really doing this? Like, is he really inviting him? Because all the disciples, like I said, they would have had dealings. He knows it's going to create problems with Simon the Zealot. Right? This is a guy that would have shipped him. He would have killed him. And so, however, guys, if you follow Jesus... You're going to be around people you probably wouldn't normally hang around on your own. You don't get to choose who's in his family. He does. And when you really stop and think about it, we all look a lot more like Matthew than we look like Jesus. Is that true? Yeah. So... Again, I don't know why people struggle with this. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one comes to Me unless the Father draws Him. Romans 3.10 is a quote of Psalm 14. 
No one is righteous. No one seeks God. It can't be any clearer than that. But turn over to Ephesians 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Paul's writing the Ephesian church. And the first three chapters really deals with what Christians ought to be believing. And and then he puts it into practice. What does that mean? What does it look like? But chapter 1, remember chapter 1? Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption. Very clear there that God chose us. But notice what He says in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What can a dead person do? They can't do a thing. They can't respond. They can't do anything. Following the prince of the power of the air. I didn't follow Satan. Well, who was in charge? Well, I just I just wasn't following Jesus. Well, who was in charge? Well, I guess I was. Well, if you're in charge, you're following Satan. Plain and simple. among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is Paul saying this stuff right here. And the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's not one person alive who seeks God. Not one. Apart from God doing a regenerative work in his life. God has to draw you. Yeah, but I know I, 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 know I wanted Him. You didn't want Him until He gave you the ability to want Him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? He made us alive. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Do you know what seated is there? It's in the past tense. When Paul's writing this, seating, he seated us is past tense. He made it positionally true. So that when He regenerates you, you're there not because of what you do, but you're there because of what He did. That He chose you. Our responsibility is to respond to the grace. So, verse 15. What did Matthew do in response to all this? Well, it says he rose. He got up, he rose, and he followed him. And when he went there, right away, what did he do? It says, well, he just, you know, hung around Jesus and didn't do anything else. No, that's not what it says. It says, he went home and he had a party. And who did he invite? He invited his friends. He invited all the people he hung around. You see, the tax collectors were like a little mafia group. They had all kinds of connections to the underworld 
in their cities. All the people that were doing bad things because they couldn't go into the synagogue. They couldn't go into the, the temple. So these people hung together. So Matthew goes, man, i got to let these guys know about this king that just called me to be part of his kingdom. Listen, when you ate with somebody because they invited him over to eat and he invited Jesus to come to his house to eat, you're in, in their culture, eating was communion, fellowship. It was intimate. It was not like we, we eat today because we like food. They ate because they liked each other. Does that make sense? When they got together, if I invited you over to my house, what I'm saying is, I want to get to know you. I want to be your friend. I want us to be uh, knowing each other. We kind of lost that in our culture, really. Because even when we get together, we usually have an agenda. We're trying to drive it. But we don't take time to get to know people like they did. It was communion for them. The Christian life is not just academic, guys. It's not just head knowledge. It's a relationship with God. It's communion. You don't just get up and run through your Bible in the morning. Okay, I read that, read that, read that. Okay, i got to go. It is connecting with Him. So do you spend time fellowshipping with God in His Word? Our church, our Bible study group, our SWAT group, our small group, whatever, cannot be a substitute for that. It's a supplement, not a substitute. And Jesus broke bread with Matthew and his friends. Hey guys, what's it called when you invite somebody to meet the one who changed your life? Starts with an E, ends with an ism. Yeah, evangelism. I tried to make it easy. Marine proof. Right? I make it marine proof, right, Steve? Yeah. Evangelism. A new king rules, and I want to introduce you to him so you can be part of the kingdom. And so Matthew starts with those closest to him. Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, those right around you, Judea, the next circle out, Samaria. Now I'm going cross-cultural and all the ends of the earth, anybody God brings into my path. So, by the way, how many evangelism classes had Matthew gone to? It says in the text what I just read. They didn't just come to eat with Matthew. It says many started following Jesus. The, the religious leaders were pretty excited that all these dirty people are going to clean up, weren't they? Verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Guys, when you follow Jesus, you're going to be mocked, ridiculed, questioned. Because human beings struggle with forgiveness. We all want it for ourselves, but we struggle to give it to others and we struggle to celebrate it when we see it applied to other people. You ever thought about that? We really do. When we see people forgiven, for wait a minute, you know what he did was really bad. Oh, you're going to forgive him? 
I, I did like the way the chosen portrayed that when, when Peter, in this particular series, the way they portrayed it, it could have been very realistic the way it would have happened. Peter goes, but wait a minute, wait a minute, you're, you're bringing him? And he goes, I brought you. And he said, but that's different. And he says, get used to different. Right? You see, people don't have a problem with Buddhism, a life that's redeemed through meditation. They don't have a problem with Hinduism, a life that's redeemed through choice changes and trying to bring about different consequences. They don't have a problem with Islam. People telling you, you got to do these five pillars and, and then and God will accept you. But people have a problem with Jesus forgiving people that they don't think should be forgiven. Don't you think a lot of people don't don't think they're worthy of forgiveness too? I mean, sometimes when I talk to people, I almost get the impression they don't think you know he's not he, he might forgive other people. He's not going to forgive me. I'm just you know. that you know that's self pity yeah. and that's a form of pride. I'm not arguing. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah, but I, it is. It's 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 self pity and pride to say, yeah, he could forgive others, but not me. Is saying, I I don't trust in his power. But you know what? And I agree. I do. I had a guy on an airplane do that with me one time. I, t- I think I've shared that story with you. So here's the thing. Psalm 32, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is beautiful right there. And that was just like the paralytic when he said, your sins are forgiven. No greater words to hear then your sins are forgiven. Um, Over the last 40 years, I've made a lot of mistakes with my wife. A lot of mistakes. My wife. Yeah, a lot of mistakes. You know, some of the sweetest words is when she says, I forgive you. There's just something healing about that. And to hear that from God to hear in His Word. It excited Matthew. He wanted his friends to hear that because he walked around for years with that inside of him. He had betrayed his people and now he was free. He wanted his friends to hear, hey, it can happen for you too. And so, verse eight or 17, they, 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 they were responding saying, why is he doing this? He said, because I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous or the self-righteous. So why do we engage with sinful people first? They're sick. We engage. How many unbelievers do you hang around on a regular basis? Far too many of us just hang in little holy huddles. We need to be around people, spending time with people that, that don't know the Lord so we can be what I call spiritual EMTs. Why? Because we're His Physician's assistant. We're his nurse practitioner. We are the EMTs to bring people to Jesus out there. 
Because Jesus is the doctor. We're not the doctor. We're just the temporary get them to the doctor guy. And our purpose is to help the sick. Why did God save us? Why does He leave us here? It's so we can serve Him. So, a very unexpected invitation. Well, 18 through 22, we see John's disciples and the Pharisees. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. John's disciples were fasting. You know why they were fasting? Because John's message was one of repentance. Anytime you see repentance being proclaimed, like a, 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 you need to repent, you'll see mourning. Think back to Jonah in Nineveh. They, 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 there was mourning over sin. The Pharisees fasted twice a week because they were mourning over the rebellion of Israel for all these years. That's what it was started out as. But now by this time, it is a show. And that's why Jesus addressed it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, listen, when you fast, don't go out and look all miserable. Put water on your face. You don't fast on just for the outside and let people see that. It's an internal thing. And I told people, I've counseled guys who've had affairs and, and they've, they've cheated on their wives. And I'll be talking to them after the fact and they'll be like, you know, I've said I'm sorry. How long is she going to treat me like this? And I said, you don't get it, do you? You're not broken on the inside. You just want to do the external to make it all go away. The Pharisees were focused on the external. And so when they say, hey, why aren't your guys fasting? What does Jesus say? The guys are partying too much. And Jesus goes, we're at a wedding party, man. He did. That's what He said. Hey, a wedding was a huge celebration in that culture. In fact, they actually had commands, I think in the Mishnah, that you could not go to a wedding party and fast or mourn. Because it was a big celebration. It was one of their biggest. So who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus. Who are the groomsmen? The disciples or His followers. Who's the bride here in this text that He's talking about? Matthew. Well, it's not us yet. Matthew? It's, it's Jews. It's Israel. It's the remnant that are going to respond to Him. Now what ends up happening is they reject Him as a nation and then we get brought in as the bride. But, but at this point, He's talking about Matthew. Matthew was part of the bride and he's celebrating and what does jesus say but verse 20 the day will come when the groom's going to be taken away or the bridegroom's going to be taken away this is a reference to his crucifixion guys but understand this the death of jesus is not the defeat of god's plan it's the fulfillment jesus knew this is the third time he's talking about it that he's kind of alluded to it and so verses 21 and 22, he gives these two illustrations. One of putting new cloth on an old garment and another of putting new wine in old wineskins. And what he's saying is this, you can't have old, in other words, John disciples and uh, the Pharisees fasting, mourning over sin and celebrating the bride is here or the bridegroom is here. You can't have those two things together. And so you celebrate the forgiveness of God when the bridegroom's there. 
You can't celebrate if you're stuck in mourning over your old life, your old sins. We confess our present sins. Remember what Jesus said when they baptized? He, he, or he not baptized, he washed the feet. He says, you, you need to just confess every day. You got to wash your feet because every day you go out. So the present sins you confess. But anything that happened prior to your rebirth, I don't care how bad it is. I don't care what you did. It's gone, wiped away. And if you mourn over that, you miss the joy of the salvation of celebrating His forgiveness. So the, yeah. On, as far as, uh, I guess you're saying, don't, don't, don't soak in it. So what prayer can you, can you, can you express to God to help you uh, cleanse God, it? help me focus on what you have done, not what I did. You see, this is why he says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, give thanks always. Nobody gives thanks over cancer. Nobody, but, but you give thanks for the fact that even though you may have cancer, your hope is you're going to be with Him in heaven. And so in the same way you think about your sins, I was this way, but now I'm this way because of Him. When you focus on Him, you should celebrate gratitude and celebration. And that's what Jesus is saying. Our past sins are paid for. They're gone. What happens if you dig up something dead? It stinks. Your sins are gone. They're, they're paid for. And also, He's saying you can't add Jesus to your system. I've talked to people before. Well, I'm a Buddhist, but I love Jesus. No, you don't. You can't merge Jesus and Buddhism. You can't. You can't merge Jesus and your version of Christianity. So here's takeaways, guys, as we close. One, Jesus chooses who's in His kingdom. Not us. He's the King. First of all. Jesus chooses who's in His kingdom. Not us. He's the King. Second, Jesus came for sinful, sick people. Not the righteous, or, or you can say self-righteous. So we shouldn't be surprised at people who've had a rough life want to follow Him. Three, people who are forgiven naturally, naturally want to introduce others to their king. Yeah. It, it, it's a natural overflow. It's not something you've got to be trained to do. It's not something you've got to be goaded into doing. It's natural if you celebrate your forgiveness. Fourth, God calls us to follow His plan, not our version of His plan. See, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were following their version of God's plan. And number five, as kingdom followers, we should celebrate His mercy and forgiveness instead of mourning our past mistakes. And, and you may be saying, well, Doug, that sounds awful soft on sin to me. No. Listen, I'm not saying there's not consequences for your past sins. That doesn't mean if you rob a bank and then you go, well, I'm really sorry, God, I was in a bad way, you don't go to jail. <laughs> 
But what I'm saying is, when you go to jail, you go to jail as a forgiven guy if you're His. You're His. That trumps everything. And so, that's why He says, strive for the holiness without which no man will see God. Because of what He's done, I want to live a holy life. I want to follow Him because I'm so grateful. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Any questions? I, I got one, and it's, it, might, it sounds simple to me, but I, I'm not for sure if I even understand the whole answer. How do you know when you forget it? Um, well, do you trust in Jesus? Yes. Did you trust Him as your King and Savior to deliver you from your sin? Yes. Well, then, why wouldn't you be forgiven? It's just my simplicity. I was thinking too much. Yeah. <laughs> That's our problem. We try to overanalyze everything. And, and what the enemy does is he tries to get you to doubt. Listen, I can honestly say, I haven't looked in my life and gone, man, I wonder if I'm a Christian. I know I'm His. When Jesus died, Al, how many sins had you committed at that point 2,000 years ago? Zero. So He died for every sin you would commit, right? As His child. You're His. Are you His because of what you do or because of what He did? Are you, are, you, are you His because you chose Him or He chose you? Yeah. So if that death on the cross applied to your future sins, then why would it not cover what you do today? That's why He says you still got to repent. He says in 1 John 1.9, if you repent, He will be faithful to forgive. Right? And in the same vein, now that you've been forgiven, you forgive other people. It should impact the way we live. That's why believers should be humble. Believers should be grateful. Believers should be people excited to celebrate. I've been forgiven. You know, it's not that I'm just always so happy. I'm not happy about my life circumstances. I got a lot of things going on in my life I don't like right now. But what I celebrate is my sins are forgiven, and I know if God takes me today, I'll be with Him tomorrow forever because my sins are gone, both past, present, and future. He saved me, He's saving me, and He will save me. Does that make sense? Good question. Well, thank you for that. That was good. Uh, Amos, will you close in prayer?